Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins and it's great to have your company. Christmas is out of the way, a new year beckons. So happy new year to all my listeners and contributors. 2019. Soon it will be 2020. It's extraordinary when you think about it. And there are many journeys ahead. The US poet and philosopher Henry David Thoreau said, Me thinks that the moment my legs begin to move, my thoughts begin to flow. The Camino is calling. My guest this week is an Australian author and pilgrim, Noel Braun. And I had heard of Noel's work via my Camino contacts, but it was a chance meeting with some of friends of Noel's last week that prompted me to reach out. He's on the line from the Snowy Mountains. Noel Braun, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. You have an amazing story to tell, and, and we'll get to it in a moment. But first, right. do you remember how you first heard about the Camino de Santiago? Yes. Uh, well, it uh, was uh, the first time I actually heard of it was uh, back in the 90s when um, at the time I was living in uh, Sydney up uh, near Terry Hills and uh, uh, we went to um, church there regularly and one of the other parishioners walked walked it the Camino with his daughter and uh, he wrote a little article about it in our parish magazine and um, I thought, hmm, that's a, a good idea. Um, although at that time I had no thought that I would ever do it. Back then it wasn't until um, probably 2006 that I actually decided, yes, I shall do, I shall walk the Camino one of these days, and then it wasn't until 2010 that I actually took the first steps from um, Le Puy, Le Puy en Below in uh, France. There. Would you consider yourself a spiritual person? Yes, I do. Yes, yes, because uh, I certainly see the, um, um, uh, the, the Camino very much as a um, spiritual journey. Um, um, like any um, pilgrimage, uh, the Camino is a metaphor uh, for the uh, journey of the spirit, and so that um, all of the ups and downs, the joys and tribulations that you experience on the Camino, they are a replication of the spiritual life of what happens to you uh, on your on your inner journey. Yeah. Beautifully put. Yeah. That's really beautifully put. I want to go. Again. I want to take a step back. You were a country school teacher. Tell tell us about life in rural Australia in in, in those days. Because you ended up in the corporate world and, and in the big smoke. Do you look back fondly on your time as a country school teacher? Well, yes, I do. Um, no, I think it was at the, about the age of twenty. Um, I went to a tiny little school <clears throat> in the Victorian Mallee, um, a little one-teacher school of a, with about a dozen children. And um, uh, it was a place called Coolanong, about um, 50 miles up the road from Swan Hill, uh, deep in uh, that 10 miles in off the Murray, but it was deep Mallee country. Um and um, 
it was my introduction to sort of rural life because I'd been brought up in Melbourne. And um, um, it, it, it was, it, in a way, I did become very fond of um, of the rural and um, country life because I found the people there. Um, they, even though they uh, lived in remote areas, their outlook was broad. Um, they lived it tough, and life for them was very um, capricious. You know, they depended very much upon the seasons. They all had big um, holdings, three or four thousand acres, and they grew um, um, grew wheat and uh, reared of sheep. And um, the, 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 um, what was really nice about it was their social social life. Our, uh, the social activities of that, that little town evolved, evolved around the football club. <laughs> and I even, I, I even managed to get a game um, with the football club and became the secretary. So... Um, and uh, in addition to that, of course, I, I had my job as uh, as um, uh, uh, as the teacher. And in a little place like that, you know, it's like a family. Yeah. In fact, we were a family, and I used to be quite um, thrilled when every now and then the kids would forget and call me dad. Oh wow! How gorgeous! Yeah. How lovely! Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um, I had I had I had the two years in um, um, in the valley, um, and then I had the two years in um, Gippsland, in a little school called um, Nearham North, um, a, a completely different style country. It was all uh, dairy farming, um, and the people were really diff- quite different too. Different outlook. Yeah. Different approach to life um, there, and also I didn't get so involved in the community because it, being near Melbourne, I was coming back and forth uh, most weekends. Um, there, so but but um, yes, it was. I, I look back now on, on those four years I had of teaching, and um, um, I, as a joke, I say to people. That four years of teaching in a little one-teacher school ruined, ruined me for life because I made every decision, every decision I had to make, you know, from what to teach the kids to, um, you know, when to sweep the floor and uh, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I, I developed a great deal of self-reliance and I was never comfortable with a boss. Yeah. After that, <laughs> that's well. Never cut it. It was okay if the boss decided to do the way I thought it should be done. <laughs> but when he wanted to do it differently, yeah, that's where I felt decidedly uncomfortable. <laughs> so, so yeah. life in a country town and life as a teacher in a one-teacher school um, sets you up for a life in the corporate world. Where, where did this passion for writing come about? Um, well, um, I was always interested in writing. I used to write poetry as, um, um, as an adolescent. In fact, I won a prize once, would you believe? Um, 
Um, but I didn't do very much. But uh, what happened while I was in the corporate life, um, um, I started to write uh, uh, various articles uh, for management magazines. We were in a, I was in a human resource um, management consulting company. And uh, uh, my, uh, my employees didn't mind me spending company time uh, writing these articles as long as I put down um, uh, at the end of the article my name and where I work. Yeah. So it was a bit of PR for them. And then I thought um, I would like to write uh, a novel one of these days. Um, like, you know, like these phrases, one of these days we use. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and um, then I thought, now, what should I write about? And um, I thought, I could write a story about my experience of life in a, in a remote rural locality in a one-teacher school because I had a very clear memory of everything that happened. And as it turned out, I used to write a letter every week to my mother and my mother kept them all. So I had had a perfect record of um, what happened in, in, in those days. So it was back in the 70s, yes, in the mid-70s that I wrote the first drafts of my um, first novel. In those days, it was all handwritten, and I used to take it round with me, and um, wherever I did a lot of travelling days, uh, in those days, I'd take it with me, and instead of spending, you know, an evening in a hotel down in the bar, um, I, I would sit up there and write my... Um, my uh, manuscript, mind you, I'd still visit the bar, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't spend uh, <laughs> all night there. And um, my sister Maria used to type it for me. Anyway, I I put it aside. I put it aside there for oh, must have been nearly thirty years, um, and I saying to myself, again, one of these days I'll get back to that. So it wasn't till somewhere around about 2000 um, that I took it up again and, of course, had to rewrite it all extensively. So so then my first novel came out in um, 2004 um, and um, it was... Uh, a story. It was a story, um, a coming of age story. It was a clash of cultures. Uh, it was a um, struggle of a, of a little community trying to keep its school open because once um, the school closed, the community's half dead. So, um, and it and it went very well. It's very well. It's now in its third print. Friend and yeah. philosopher. That's right. Friend that's and friend and philosopher, because that's based on the idea that the teachers' college uh, lecturers used to tell the students that country school teachers should be the friend and philosopher uh, of the district. 
So my my hero, who's a bit of an idealist, really took that up and tried to um, apply it. However, he didn't have quite the the maturity to pull it off, and and that's the um, interesting part of the story of that, how he eventually manages to make it through. Yeah. And then there's a second book, Whistler Street. Yeah, Whistler Street. Yeah, Whistler Street was um, actually, um, yeah, Whistler Street's a different story altogether. It's a story of um, two guys who grew up together on the surf beaches of Western Australia. Um, and then um, the, the, uh, the action moves to... Um, Sydney to Manly to Whistler Street and there is a Whistler Street in Manly um, and the action goes back and forth um, and uh, um, it, it was originally going to be four short stories um, that's how I started on the theme of unrequited love but I managed to put them all into the one into the one. Technically, I think that Whistler Street is a um, is, is a better novel than Friend and Philosopher. But on the other hand, the reader is the boss, and the readers like Friend and Philosopher. So, um, and then I I had written about forty thousand words of another novel because that's where I saw I was. Um, Going, but then um, uh, an event then occurred that completely changed the whole course of of uh, my life. That's right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Next, the next book is a memoir, No Way to Behave at a Funeral. And yeah. it was dealing with you, well, you dealing with the death by suicide of your wife. Yes. Walk, yes, us, uh, walk us through that journey. Okay, my wife, Maris, um, she suffered from uh, depression. And, and as the years, um, not so, as the years advanced, it grew, you know, the depression took a stronger grip of her. Um, initially, it was um, um, one or two weeks a year that she went into the depths. Um, but then she managed to revive herself and uh, live uh, a normal sort of life for most of the year. And as the year, as the years advanced, that um, that the influence of the depression spread. So in the last year or two, it was a constant um, companion, and um, there was a, a history of. Um, mental illness in the family in that both her sisters had died by suicide. She said she would never um, uh, take her own life, but I think the pain was that that intense that it was, um, um, you know, it, it's something that she couldn't cope with any longer. And and to the you know to the people she kept she hit it very well except only the family and her close friends were aware of the suffering that she was experiencing and that was a great um, surprise to many when she took her 
own life. And in fact, now I look at the clock and it's about half past ten on a Saturday morning, and which was about the time that the police arrived. Um, there, so um, um, uh, as, as you, you'd be aware, she died on a Saturday. So I, um, I usually resolve each Saturday not to think about it too much. Um, but anyway, what happened is that um, her death completely upset every assumption and value that I had in life. You know, I'd lost my sense of identity from being one of uh, a couple uh, to being one, one on my, on my own. And um, I can recall making conscious decisions um, at the time that this was not going to beat me. And I was um, uh, I, I resolved to you know, sort of keep keep pressing on and t- try and get some value out of the experience. I was already involved with Lifeline uh, as a telephone counsellor, um, and then I became involved with supporting other people who had been bereaved by suicide. In fact, I was involved in facilitating um, um, groups of very courageous people, you know, who were facing a journey similar to myself. And um, I was was with them. I had two hats on. I was a trained uh, professional for a start because my training is in psychology, but I, I was also talking from experience. So I knew what was authentic, what was real, you know, yeah. what was genuine. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, so um, I don't doubt it anyway. I put it, as far as the writing was concerned, I put aside the... Um, Novel, it's still there, waiting one of these days. As I said, I'll get back to it. But I put it aside and I decided I'm going to write um, this account, this memoir of my own grief journey. Uh, it was therapeutic for me uh, and it would also be helpful to others on the same journey. I couldn't couldn't touch it for 12 months or more. Um because the pain of recall would have been too intense, but uh, uh, as the pain became less intense, it was still fairly painful writing it, recalling all the detail. Oh, yeah. I did, I did write it, and I think, I think every written, every word of that was written straight from the heart. Um, and um, so, when when that came out. Um, um, it's got a limited um, market. I was aware of that, but uh, I've had some extraordinary feedback yeah. on on um, on on that, and uh, still have. And people are still buying it, and I'm still getting emails from people who've 
said they've just read it and had to um, contact me. So yeah. I I feel honoured, um, you know, that I have managed to create something which has been of value and helpful to um, to uh, sort of many many people. And, and yeah, go on. Oh mm. no, no, I was just about to say you talk about it. Uh, you go out and talk to people about it at at, at, at sort of at festivals and, and in libraries and, and things. Yes. And that must take an enormous bravery. But but just before we go on to the next question, I just want to ask you, because if somebody is listening, they might be interested in how depression manifests itself in daily life. You say that your wife years ago would 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 sort of spiral into into the depths for a few weeks a year. And the reason I'm asking that question also, Noel, is because if somebody, and you say it's very difficult for, for, for people to identify that somebody is depressed, perhaps somebody's listening thinking, how can, I, how can I tell if somebody's depressed? What are the symptoms? How does it manifest itself in daily life? Um, all right, well, it's, um, it's uh, often a listlessness, um, a lack of motivation, um, fearfulness, anxiety, um, a constant, uh, constant apprehensions. Um, these are some of uh, the things I think. Um, 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 yeah, and and um, a general feeling of um, just unable to get on with things. And then when people used to say, not so much now, uh, give yourself a good shake and get out of it. Uh, the person who's suffering would usually say, if only I could. Um, but um, the, 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 the signs are, uh, I suppose, it, it's the, the signs of... Um, Thinking about suicide are the ones that sort of one should look look out for, and then um, sometimes the uh, depression sufferer um, issues what they call invitations, and, and there are comments like, um, "I'm not much good. People will won't miss me if I'm when I'm not here." That sort of stuff. Um, the real giveaway is when they might be actually giving away what they regard as precious things for themselves. You know, I won't, I might not need this anymore. Um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, and no, I think, um, the, um, the thing for the person, if somebody feels that they know somebody who's suffering depression, is it encouraging to go and seek help? You know, yeah, yeah. First, first step: go and see your uh, your GP, and from there, um, the GP might be able to help with medication, or they might be able to um, refer to uh, specialist help. Yeah, that's so, the reason, that's why I asked the question. Yeah, because so if we can help one person, then that's a step in the right direction. Very much so. Very much so. And um, 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 I tend to see myself as a bit of. Um, an advocate for, for suicide awareness and prevention. Yeah. And um, uh, that's why I was involved with Lifeline. Less so uh, now that I live in the here in the Snowy Mountains, but there's still 
uh, an opportunity in our um, local community to be alert to um, uh, to be alert to people who are on their own and are doing it tough. In fact, uh, there are two or three of us had a little discussion just before Christmas, and we decided to put on Facebook uh, a little message. Think about those people whom you know that are lonely um, at this time. You know, this is uh, events like Christmas. Uh, there's often a peak in in um, suicide or suicide attempts. So just be alert to those that you may know, and if you can, reach out to them. That was a little message we just mm. um, um, gave to. Uh, put on our Facebook, our notice board, Gindabine notice board. So hopefully some people noted that and took yeah. action on it. Is someone left behind by suicide, someone like yourself, a survivor? Yeah. Um, yes. Um, initially the person who's bereaved by suicide is regarded as... Um, as uh, at risk themselves, and some do succumb, but generally people survive it and manage to overcome it, and although they will never get used to it, they learn to cope with it and live with it. It becomes it becomes um, part of one's life, um, and you get on with things. Yeah. You get on with things. Uh, there's a small percentage of people who don't and who can't, uh, but I think uh, most people seem to have the resilience. You say the grief banishes. Yeah, you say the grief banishes survivors to a place so removed from the normal hurly burly of everyday life that they feel close to madness. Somehow yeah. they have to claw their way back. So how did yeah. you, how did you claw your way back? Okay, um, well, what I did initially is um, uh, it was it was um, at the same time uh, as my um, wife uh, died, that friend and the philosopher came out. Um, so the end of two thousand and four was both. Very, very bad news and also a bit of good news. So what I did over that next year is I, I, um, got out and flogged that book. You know, I, I got out. That was my purpose. Yeah. I found a purpose. I got out and flogged it. Uh, my children, um, chastised me for using the word flog. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but that's, um, that's pretty well what, what I did. I did, um, I did um, go overseas briefly in uh, the beginning of 2005, but that was a disaster uh, because um, uh, it was far, far too early. Um, but at least it, I, I spent a little time, you know, involved in planning it and that. But when I came back, the, the grief was just waiting there. Uh, but I did go overseas again in 2006, and I spent nearly six months in France, and I went to live in a little town called Chambéry in the French Alps, and I enrolled in a French language school. 
And it was there that I would go to Cathedral each Sunday. And it was there that I would see groups of pilgrims with their backpacks and their shells being blessed. And they were off to off to uh, Santiago. Uh, and that's when, you know, the idea of the Camino came back into my mind. And that's when I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll do that one of these days. But it took me four years. It wasn't until 2010 that I did uh, the first, uh, I took the first steps of my first Camino, and, as and, I mentioned before. Yeah, and the clawing back begins. Yeah, and I saw that. I saw that all well, the planning and the preparation um, of that for the Camino, a, an opportunity to um, give my life a bit of structure, and also um, in terms of the spiritual preparation, what was I doing it for? What questions I was um, um, seeking answers for? trying to define the actual questions in the first place. Um, so it, it's not only just the physical preparation, preparing my body, um, but it was also um, uh, preparing, preparing the mind, preparing the mind, preparing the uh, spirit for the arduous aspects of uh, pilgrimage. Pilgrimage is not like a stroll in the park. It's... Uh, Definitely taking a step out of your comfort zone and into the into the unknown. Um, you can do so much planning, but um, there's always um, the predictable, and you have to be prepared to accept that if anything's likely to go wrong, it will. Um, and then it's how you cope with these adversities, which is part of your journey. It's part of that journey that strengthens you, you know, and gives you further courage and self-reliance to um, to uh, continue. Yeah, you, the, in, in much the same in much the same way as you do so in life. That's why I see yeah. there's such a close parallel between um, life on the Camino as a pilgrimage and life as a pilgrim in your day-to-day life. Yeah. That's a that's a beautiful line. Be, you know, so a lot of Thank people you. say that your Camino begins the day you decide to go. And yeah, I would accept that. Yeah, and and therefore, and this, and you've just summed up in the last couple of minutes perfectly what my next suggestion to you is that the Camino is a great healer, because if your Camino begins the day you decide to go, you've begun healing. Yes. Yes. Yes, I, I, I would certainly accept that, and and um, I um, um, used to receive great joy from um, some of the people whom I'd met on the Camino, fellow, fellow pilgrims, who were prepared to tell their story. Sometimes it took a couple of red wines, <laughs> um, you know, for people to open up, and yeah. um, and I always thought. The wonderful way to develop trust is to share a meal together. So, you know, if you could share a meal with other pilgrims, in no time people were prepared to open up 
because in general, our normal data life is a bit of mistrust and suspicion. Uh, and, you know, people were revealing their vulnerabilities that um, seems to be far more acceptable to um, do so on the community and share your vulnerabilities. And I've heard some wonderful stories from, from uh, uh, people as they begin to talk about what, what has triggered off their uh, interest in the Camino and has created the desire to um, pursue it. Yeah. People, people talk about the energy of the Camino. Uh, how, yeah. do you, how do you describe it to people? If you're at home, but you're back in Australia and someone says, oh, I've heard about this Camino, how do you, how do you describe the energy to them? Uh, well, I think we usually talk about it in terms of the Camino. The Camino has a mystical life of itself, takes on a life of its, of its own. Um, even even though you may initially have gone on the Camino for some specific reason, some healing process, uh, the Camino then seems to become an entity itself that motivates you and... Um, attracts you and then, then more importantly as soon as you get home it draws you back and you you know you want to um you want to continue um you want to continue the journey in that way and of course um what happens when you get home you, you forget all the difficulties and discomforts and hardships you remember of course all the highlights and some of those joys of people all you meet yeah that doesn't matter. Um, it's 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 that life that it takes on, and then people talk in terms of the Camino looks after you. Other people, more religious, say God's look after God will look after you on the Camino. Don't worry. People will say the Camino looks after you. Don't worry. As far as I can turn, they're the same thing. Um, but uh, the 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 the, the, there's a sort of this great depth, great spiritual depth, I think, to the, the Camino. When you think of it, people have been walking it for over a thousand years. Um, and I often think everyone who's walked the Camino leaves just a tiny bit of their own essence there. So just think of that. Wonderful collective spirit that uh, that lies there, because when you walk the Camino, you're walking the same path as um, uh, so many other people. Um, you look down and you see the footprints of the people who have walked that day or the day before. And if you want to go down through a few layers, there's the footprints that've been walking, you know, all the way back. You leave your print footprints. And um, in turn, people coming after you will leave their footprints. So there's this great collective, a collective that spreads not only with the people that you're walking now, but the people who have walked in the past and in the future. And that's a marvellous bond uh, to um, to think about, um, to um, yeah. And also, as you're walking, you're part of creation. Um, there's some delightful country that you sort of walk through, particularly in France, 
and you feel so um, tied to it, so much part of it. And and if you drive by in a car or in a coach, you're remote from it. You're in a capsule. But if you're walking um, through it, you've got time to stop and look. Um, look around. And and um, I'm currently in a mode, riding mood at the moment, and I've just described this uh, day that I... Um, that I sat um, in the ditch by the side of the road to eat my lunch and ate watch, watching a beetle struggling up the embankment and kept on falling back, you know, the little grass was too light and it would fall back, but up it would get and kept going. And I thought, now, that's that's an allegory for our own pilgrimage, for our own... Um, um, sort of journey. Um, and when I try to talk, sometimes people don't sort of quite, you know, they sort of look at me when I try to talk about things like this. But for me, they're very real um, as to what the, the Camino is about. You, yeah. In your first Camino book, The Day Was Made for Walking, you discovered it was not just the rigorous physical demands, but you said the territory of the heart and soul has its own challenges, which found you searching for spiritual and emotional insights. I'd suggest to you that if you're getting those kind of metaphors from little beetles, <laughs> that you yeah. you found some of those insights. But what did you learn about yourself, do you think? Myself? Mm. Um, yeah, well, I um, one of the major things I learned is... Um, to ask, um, don't be completely self-sufficient. Um, be prepared to accept help. Um, and um, I do say, um, uh, from um, a career in the helping professions, you have been, I've been reaching out to others. But, um, you know, there are times when you have to accept the help that people offer to you when you reach, when they, they, they reach out to you. Um, I'm, I'm a churchgoer. I have looked at, um, many of the, um, doctrines that, um, my church holds and I've some of them I regard as vital, as important, and others I regard as peripheral and um, not at all important and not worth worrying about. Um, one of the great um, um, things I appreciate about my church is its teaching on social justice. And, and on the value of the individual. Um, and as you, and you reflect, ruminate on these things as to what makes them so vital and so important. So I, I think I've reached uh, a, a, um, a, a situation largely through the Camino of uh, re-evaluating all of these not accepting everything as um, 
as a neat package, as it were, sort of dissected it and pulled out of what, what I believe is a value, particularly a value to me. Yeah, yeah. You, you, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely it does. It, it's a yeah. fantastic answer. I could listen to you all day, to be honest. Oh, thank you. No, no, I, no I, I think that somebody like you, you have been through a lot. And, yeah. and, and yeah. you were brave enough in many respects to say to yourself, no, this is not going to define me. Uh, yes. And I'm yeah. going to claw back and then to take it a step further again and offer insight into what you have been through is a very, uh, I often say here on the podcast that pilgrims are sharers and carers. And, and, and that's a, it's a very pilgrim-like thing to do. But, of course, the pilgrimage came after what you had been through. And in it, you say the book is a journal of the many characters you met. And you said in time you realised you were one of the Camino characters. So tell us, yeah. about, tell us about Noel the Pilgrim. Oh, right. Well, as one of the characters, um, um, once again, I'm thinking about my walk last year. Um, I walked from Vesselay. That was my fifth journey last year. But I walked up near Paris and walked south towards the Pyrenees. And I stayed in um, one refuge earlier on where where the lady who took who looked after us took to me gratefully. You know, here I was the eighty four year old Australian walking on his on a on her own on his own. And after that I met pilgrims and they said, Oh yes, we know about you um, <laughs> we started so-and-so and the lady told me then and and then I was just thinking of one place I rang one refuge um, to you know make a booking there and I, I said oh we've been waiting for you <laughs> this is all in French mind you uh, we've been waiting for you um, uh, we'd expect you to call or just turn up so I thought oh yes well I, I was sort of one of the characters walking on my own, Australian, and um, so much so that I, <laughs> I I ran into a French TV um, crew. Um, they were from uh, France 3, France 3, and they had their regional and... Um, National programs, a bit like um, Prime Television does yeah. here, yeah. and they were making a series of um, they were making a series of short films about the people who walk through their area and the locals who look after them. So, um, so I appeared in I appeared in this and uh, <laughs> uh, I had a drone which followed me for half a day. And um, I was interviewed. The interview was only about um, uh, was about twenty minutes. But they only used about twenty seconds in the um, in the actual um, YouTube clip, which I suppose is what generally happens. 
And I said to the interviewer, I don't know how my French is going to handle this. (laughs) (laughs) But he seemed to think I handled it very well. Uh, Because, um, you know, some of these ideas that I've just spoken to you about, um, sometimes it's difficult enough to express them in English, but when you've got to try and express them <laughs> in another right. language, <laughs> it really tests you. <laughs> That's so good. So, yeah. So, um, and I must admit, in terms of being a character, I, I did reach out to people. I, I preferred to work on my own, work, walk on my own during the uh, day for the silence and the solitude. But in the evening, I, I did enjoy the company of others and um, I would try out what I knew of all the different languages. Um, so I'd say good day in half a dozen languages to someone I'd meet until I got a response. <laughs> <laughs> and and if they were, um, if they knew French or English, fine. Uh but we always managed to communicate, and I've spent uh, evenings with um, people who didn't know a word of English or French, but we still had a great time together. Terrific. Such is the spirit. Such yeah. is the spirit of the Camino. Yeah. And one of the issues, one of the issues, I think, if you if you walk the Camino with someone else or with a group, they're the people you tend to talk to and and mix with. But if you're on your own, if you want company, well, you've got to step out of yourself and say good day. Or the equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Noel, the second book on the Camino is, I guess I'll just keep walking, is a bit more, it's a bit more of a history lesson. Did you enjoy doing the research and learning all those ancient stories? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, um, a lot of that, um, um, yeah, a lot of the, um, it's a bit a lot of it's uh, very much like walking through an outdoor museum. Yeah, because just about every place that you've been to has got a um, has got a history. Um, you, know, you come across innumerable churches, for example, that were, were built in the uh, or they were begun in the I think 11th century. Not much of that part of it left, but. Um, uh, then in some places, nothing much happened over the years. Uh, in um, in um, uh, other places, lots of things have happened in terms of invading armies and, um, and that. And there's one place I visited last year, um, Bavigny. Um, the only thing I could find in terms of the research was in 1940, um, with the invading German armies, um, they put up far more resistance than anywhere else in France. So generally the invasion was a pushover of the Germany into occupied France, but there were some places that resisted it strongly in this finigan. That's the only thing I could find in its history. Um and then you know, other um, in other places you find um, uh, nice stories about um, once again in World War Two um, uh, a site of um, partisan strong part, part partisan activity um, and uh, the uh, um, uh, lots of airdrops 
from Allied planes and uh, one particular village that was particularly strong in the resistance. The, uh, the Germans came in with their panzer attacks and demolished the lot and took everything except they could not find the village's wine cellar. <laughs> so that was their great story. Their wine cellar was intact. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I did not so well. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great story. And, and yeah, so you hear, you hear lovely, lovely little stories like that. And you are, and a, then, uh, you are a great mm, storyteller, Noel. <laughs> and there was one particular one in... It was in Spain. Uh, I came across a monument to, uh, I think I mentioned it in, um, I come across Spain in this, there was this monument in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it, I, well, Spanish was good enough to read that it was 300 people had been executed here at the beginning of the um, Spanish Civil War. And actually, their bodies were in buried just beyond, and they were actually in the process of interring them. That place was really creepy. Now that had place had great meaning and significance for me because I passed lots of other um, um, monuments along the way. You know, this is where Charlemagne came through, or yeah. where uh, Napoleon got trounced. But here was an incident that occurred, that occurred in my lifetime um, that had far more meaning to me. And it also had the place I'd stayed with. When I looked into research there, the place I'd stayed um, there in this uh, Villa Franca, the people had been conscripted to bury the bodies and they were traumatised for about 40 or 50 years and wouldn't speak about it. It was only in the last 10 years that people were going to start talking about, you know, the trauma of it all. So, um, yeah. So once you look into the history, you get start to get a little feel. Yeah. For, for, the, for the life and spirit of the place. And, and partly yeah. the reason why there is such an extraordinary energy there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I try. Yeah. If, if, if someone's listening today and thinking of walking the Camino, what would you say to them? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, do it. Um, uh, value it for the experience. Um, uh, value it for the, um, uh, you know, it's not a pushover. Uh, value it for it for the experience. Value it for the people that you meet and the stories that they tell you. Um, be be prepared to be listen, be humble, um, and uh, and go for it. Now, I have met um, I have met some delightful young people who. Um, some delightful young people um, who, who, for various reasons, um, I think at that age there, um, I think there are many people in their early 20s still haven't worked out who they are, yeah. what their sense of identity is. I think that helps to identify who they are and what uh, strengths they might have, which otherwise they may not think 
they um, have. Um, and I think it's a valuable experience for everyone, young and old. Um, I'm, I'm not the oldest on the Camino. Um, uh, people would um, seem to be impressed when I tell them, you know, my age in the 80s, walking my 80s. But I have been people in their 90s yeah. walking. And, of course, it's not as if... Um, you have to do it, what I call the hardcore pilgrim's way, that is carry it all on your back and walk every step. You know, you you, you, you can... There are many um, people and companies that will aid you, you know. Yeah. Um, many tour companies which will provide you a, a bit of an experience. Yeah, walk your own um, Camino. Yeah, that's right. Um, the French um, have a saying, chacun a son chemin. Each one has his own way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just wanted yeah. to recap for my listeners. Uh, Noel's first Camino book was called The Day Was Made for Walking or is called The Day yes. Was Made for Walking. The second, I guess I'll just keep walking. On walking, yeah. yeah. The, the, first, the novels are Friend and Philosopher and Whistler Street. Friends and Philosopher yeah. and Whistler Street, and I'm going to give out your uh, website address in a moment um, so that we can, we can, people can find your books when they need to. But then there is also the book No Way to Behave at a Funeral, and that is, is dealing with the, the suicide of your lovely wife, Maris. And just before we go, I, I wanted to suggest to you that in many ways that book, No Way to Behave at a Funeral, is a love story. Oh yes, definitely, definitely, um, um, and it continues to be um, uh, a love story, Dan. Because um, I think of her every day. I have um, she's now gone what fourteen years, but I think of her every day. I have about eight or nine um, photos of her around the place, and I have a little. The first thing that people um, do when they walk in my front door is a little shrine there, and um, I regularly light a candle for her. Um, there, candle has great um, spiritual significance, spot of light in the darkness. Um, so... Um, yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. It's a, it's a love story. It is indeed. Sure. It is indeed, and yeah, it's, it's a love story. Yeah. It, I, I feel terribly uh, privileged to have just shared this hour with you. To be honest, and I asked you earlier if you consider yourself a survivor, and I think you are most definitely a survivor. And you're probably too humble to say it, Noel. <laughs> so I'll say oh, well. it. But it's taken a great bravery to survive. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. 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 And, and I know you travel a lot these days telling your story. So thank you for taking the time. On behalf of me and my listeners, thank you for your time and, and your sharing and your caring. And congratulations on your journey. Long may you walk on listening to oh. stories and telling stories. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan. And Noel. And thank you. Buen Camino. Yeah. Buen Camino.
Okay, Juan Camino, Long Chemin. My guest this week, the Australian author and pilgrim Noel Braun. And you can find Noel and his books at Noel Braun, B-R-A-U-N, Noel, N-O-E-L, B-R-A-U-N, noelbraun.com.au. The US poet and philosopher Henry David Thoreau said, Methinks that the moment my legs begin to move, my thoughts begin to flow. Noel Braun has done a lot of thinking. And it's a great gift he's given, plotting the journey of his mind and on foot. Thank you for your company as always. A new year comes to life full of opportunities, stories to tell and journeys to travel. I can hear the Camino calling. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. (laughs) 